What's good, everybody? It is your boy, Elgin Bailey, also known as Big L, also known as Mr. Catch-22, also known as Bishop Heavyset Voice, also known as, man, what in the hell is L going to do another damn podcast? <laughs> you have now tuned into the Page Turners podcast, where we look at books from a black perspective, regardless of the author, uh, trying to accomplish two things specifically with this podcast, man. Two things. One, to combat literacy or illiteracy specifically, giving people another medium, another platform for them to uh, get information and to enjoy the wondrous beauty of books. That's one of the major ones. The also, the second one is combating racial literacy. Racial literacy specifically is the teaching of what racism and white supremacy is, and more importantly, how to combat that. And I think I'm going to do a specific broadcast on racial literacy because the term that I use often on this particular uh, podcast that I want you guys to, to be familiar with, to begin to uh, to understand it, to grasp onto it, to be able to apply it. Um, I give examples in the past of uh, parents are big on teaching their kids how to look both ways crossing the street, not to take candy from a stranger. Uh, all those different parent child types of protections and warnings we give, but not many of us are teaching our kids how to address racism and white supremacy. And that's not an exclusive black thing. Uh, some of your great white allies may be teaching their kids not to say the N-word, quote-unquote. Uh, but are they teaching their kids how to combat, how to become allies at a young age? Because racism, white supremacy is incredibly and increasingly prevalent in schools, elementary schools, uh, daycares even, kindergarten. It is crucial that if we are going to begin to address and tackle this horrible, horrible issue, we got to keep it 100 and begin to have open, honest conversations with it about this issue. So I pick books that I believe should further the conversation about racism, about black life, about uh, what many call allies, all these things. And there's been a whole bunch of BS, uh, just to be honest with you, a whole bunch of bullshit in regards to having open, honest conversations about racism. And as someone who is a Christian man, uh, it is incredibly, listen, man, within the black church, there's not too many black Christians who want to keep it 100 
about racism, white supremacy, uh, the whitewashing of Christianity, the difference between uh, westernized white evangelical Christianity and authentic Christianity. There's a significant difference there. And I think that's one of the reasons why I decided to pick this particular book that we're dealing with in season one of the Page Turners. And this book, man, is one of my all-time favorite books. Uh, and favorite from the standpoint of it was in, has been incredibly instrumental in my understanding of how things work. Uh, do I agree with everything that is within this text? No. But there is more than enough foundational uh, things within this text, man, that I think uh, every Christian should read this text. This text was written in 1969, uh, first published in 1969. Black Theology and Black Power provided the first systemic, systematic rather, pres presentation of Black Theology, relating the militant struggle for liberation with the gospel message of salvation. James Cone laid out the foundation for an original interpretation of Christianity that retains its urgency and challenge today. And for many men, there is a, a there's not a distinction, there's not a separation between the struggle for liberation and the gospel message of salvation. I personally think they are not mutually exclusive, that if you are about liberation, you are pushing a gospel message of salvation and vice versa. But that does not mean that we are just on a preach the gospel type of mentality that so many within the faith are pushing. That is just mind blowing. Uh, very, 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 very important text. Uh, Dr. James H. Cone, the late great Dr. James H. Cone, Black Theology and Black Power. This is episode 19. Team. Uh, just one more thing, housekeeping wise, man. Well, two things. <laughs> Shout out to the brother, man, who told me that I needed to have uh, <laughs> some intro outro music. I absolutely agree with you. That is something I definitely need. Uh, and I'm going to work on putting that together uh, on other podcasts, man, and broadcasts that I've had. I've had intro outro music. Uh, I'm going to bring it back. The last piece of housekeeping is I'm back in school full time, so uh, there won't be <laughs> a broadcast three times a week. But I can guarantee you this, man. There will be at least one broadcast per week. Uh, with the 30 minute, bro I mean, uh, the three times a week, man, I was able to do uh, three. 30-minute broadcast, just kind of come on, punch you in the throat with some information, with some enjoyment about the text, and roll out. I think I may begin going a little longer. Uh, let's see how my school schedule works, man. But I'm loving this particular thing, uh, this particular type of podcast. I think it's awesome. Shout out to everybody who has been incredibly supportive to what I'm doing. Uh, and the text reads.
It is important to point out that the new organizations were sometimes directly related to expulsions from white churches. Here it becomes clear that white masters accepted black slaves in their churches as a means of keeping the black man regulated as a slave. There was no mutual relationship between equals. Therefore, when whites saw that it was no longer economically advantageous to worship with blacks, they put blacks out of their churches as a matter of course. Some whites were gentle in the process, giving blacks a plot of ground or occasionally a building for a place of worship. Oh, isn't that nice? We don't want you here, but here's that uh, little place in the land <laughs> right off to the side here. You know, you guys can worship there. So sweet of these folks to do that, man. So nice. And the text reads, it is a credit to the humanity of black people that they recognize their presence in white services as an adjunct of slavery. Therefore, many of them left before being expelled. For this reason, we may describe the black churches during this period as a place of retreat from the dehumanizing forces of white power. It was one place in which the blacks were safe from their new racist structures that replaced slavery. The black church gradually became an instrument of escape instead of, as formerly, an instrument of protest. I like that. That's really, really good. How Dr. Cohn highlighted the fact that the black church was and continues to be a safe haven for blacks against and away from uh, the ills of white supremacy. Now, don't let me say that it's protecting them to the point of uh, almost making some significant debt in white supremacy. But for many years and for many black pastors, uh, it's been a voice against racism, white supremacy. Uh, and there's some reasons why it's not as loud as it used to be um, <laughs> that, that I really don't want to go into because there's so much to unpack. But I'll say this, don't buy into this notion that the black church is uh, no longer in the midst of a fight against racism and white supremacy. And the text reads, following the Civil War, black leaders were recruited from the churches who serve in public capacities previously closed to black people. But the end of Reconstruction meant the end of black involvement in state politics. The new Jim Crow structure had devastating effects comparable to slavery. In slavery, one knows what the odds are and what is needed to destroy the power of the enemy. But in a society which pronounces a man free but makes him behave as a slave, all the strength and willpower is sapped from the would-be rebel. The structures of evil are camouflaged. The enemy is elusive, and the victim is trained to accept the values of the oppressor. The second-class citizen is told that his oppression is due to his ignorance and his mental inferiority. At this point, the oppressor is duped into believing that if only he were like the oppressor, he would no longer be ridiculed. And I truly believe that is something that continues to be part of the mentality of many Blacks, that they thrive off of this, or they seek, not thrive, they seek the presence, the, 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 the positive relationships with whites as a manner of staying close and maybe 
Yes, maybe. They won't have to deal with the backlash. We always make fun, or you hear people make fun of, you know, white people when they say, I'm not racist, and they make a statement such as, well, I have a black friend. Well, I think that in many cases, the flip, is, flip side is also <laughs> true also, that there are times where, you know, black people like to keep a white friend in a stash to get them out of certain jams. <laughs> I understand. Okay? And the text reads, the black church thus lost its zeal for freedom in the midst of the new structures of white power. The rise of segregation, discrimination, and the post-civil rights in the post-Civil War period, softened his drive for equality. The black minister remained the spokesman for black people, but faced by insurmountable obstacles, he succumbed to the conjolery and bribery of the white power structure and became its foil. And I think that's fair to say when you hear people say things along those lines that the 501c3 statuses within, that many black churches hold has corrupted and co-opted the black church's ability to be effective in the community because there's certain things you can say certain things you can't say certain things you can do certain things you cannot do with having that particular uh, designation and the text reads the passion for freedom was replaced with innocuous homilies against drinking dancing and smoking and injustices in the present were minimized to the favor of kingdom beyond this world. What? Black churches adopted for the most part the theology of the white missionaries and taught blacks to forget the present and look to the future. Some black ministers even urged blacks to adopt the morality of white society entirely, suggesting that entrance into the kingdom of heaven is dependent on the obedience to the laws of white society. And you wonder why I wanted to read this text because Dr. Cohn is punching us right in the mouth, man. A jail sentence of or a fine meant that a person was immoral, subject to churchly probation, and sometimes to expulsion. Other ministers said that suffering in this life was necessary for the next life. Undue concern about white injustice was thus a sign of a loss of faith, a failure to realize that patient and long-suffering were pertinent to final judgment than zeal for present injustice. Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. This meant endurance now, liberty later. And some of y'all still believe that foolishness. Excuse me. The black minister thus became a most devoted Uncle Tom, the transmitter of white wishes, the admonisher of obedience through the caste system. He was a liaison man between the white power structure and the oppressed blacks, serving the dual function of assuring whites that all is well in the black community, dampening the spirit of freedom among his people. More than any other one person in the black community, the black minister perpetuated the white system of black demonization. Man, you remember this a couple of weeks ago? All on black pastors who, uh, yeah, yeah, who met with Trump? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think Dr. Cohn was, yeah, he was talking about them. 
I mean, you talk about this book being prophetic. Uh, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and the Urban League, and later the Congress of Racial Equality, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee were created because of the failure of the Black church to plead the cause of Black people in white society. Yeah, that's partly the reason why. And I can see why he makes that statement. Uh, yeah. Just as the black church is a visible reminder of the apostasy of the white church, the current civil rights protest organizations are a visible manifestation of the apostasy of the black church. Now, here's where I'll say this. I absolutely agree with that statement 110%. That's why organizations like Black Lives Matter are able to thrive and, 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 and not thrive as in making progress for Blacks, but thrive as in attention because of the apostasy of the Black church, because of the failure of the Black church to be a leader against injustices. So you have other organizations being able to come in and, and, and do what the Black church should and could be doing. And the text reads, forgetting their reasons for existing, the black church became, as Washington appropriately describes, amusement centers, arenas for power politics, and an organ for recognition, leadership, and worship. They became perversions of the gospel of Christ, places for accommodating the oppressed plight of black people. It was not long before the black people began to see themselves to recognize the failure of the black church and its ministers to speak to the needs of black people. During the Great Depression, the terms of censure were characteristically blunt. St. Clair Drake and Horace R. Cater report these criticisms of black ministers. Bloodsuckers. They'll take the food out of your mouth and make you think they are doing you a favor. You take these preachers. They're living like kings. Got great big Packard automobiles and 10 or 12 suits and a bunch of sisters putting food in their pantry. Do you call that religion? Nah, it ain't nothing but a bunch of damn monkey foolishness. Yeah. Church members were almost as critical as shown by these three separate statements. I'm a church member. I believe churches are still useful, but like everything else, there's a lot of racketeering going on in the church. Man, racketeering. Jeez. Ministers are not as conscientious as they used to be. They are money mad nowadays. All they want is the almighty dollar, and that is all they talk about. The preachers want to line their pockets with gold. They are supposed to be leaders of the people, but they are fake leaders. Yeah, not not really. I ain't really feeling that one, huh? <laughs> That's all right. I completely understand why you would have a hard time with that. But a lot of people have a hard time with the truth. And the text reads, To add to this error, the black ministers received, a personal, received personal favors from white society. Their churches were left alone. As long as blacks preached about heaven and told Negroes to be honest and obedient, and that by and by God would straighten things out, White supported black churches by loaning them money to build new structures. Churches could get enormous loans and gifts from white businessmen when no other group could. Whites found that it was a good investment for the maintenance of the caste system. 
despite the fact that the church property is useless from an economic perspective if the black people fail to repay and the black ministers served them well. They kept the status quo intact and assured Mr. Charlie that black people were appreciative of his generosity toward the black community. Even in the North, the black church failed to maintain its freedom from white controls. The criticisms cited from Drake and Caton on the black church were made by people from Chicago. Like Southern black ministers, they too emphasized white moralities as a mean of interest into God's future kingdom. Few black Northern churches joined the oppressed blacks by challenging the existing white power structure. Generally, they pursued worldly matters with the major emphasis on the almighty dollar for personal use. We may conclude that except in rare instances, the black churches in the post-Civil War period had been no more Christian than their white counterparts. The rare instances refer to chiefly to the recent work of a, late, of a few black ministers in the nonviolent movement with the late Martin Luther King Jr. as their leader. At least during its early stages, this movement was a return to the spirit of the pre-Civil War black preachers with the emphasis being on freedom and equality in the present political structure. King saw clearly the meaning of the gospel with its social implications and sought to instill his true spirit in the hearts and minds of black and white in this land. He was a man with, endowed with the charisma of God. He was a prophet in our own time. And like no other black or white American, he could set black people's heart on fire with the gospel of freedom in Christ, which would make them willing to give all for the cause of black humanity. Like the prophets of old, he had a dream. A dream grounded not in the hopes of white America, but in God. Nor did the dream of a future believe him of responsibilities in the present. Instead, it made him fight unto the death in order to make this dream a reality. It may appear that white America made his dream into a nightmare by setting the climate for his assassination and later memorializing his name with meaningless pieties. But his dream was grounded in God, not man. It was this realization that caused him to say the night before his death, I've been on the mountaintop. Like Moses, he did not see the promised land, but retained the unshakable certainty that God's righteousness will triumph. Excuse me. Ooh. Sorry about that. I had to wet the whistle. All right, and the text reads, Because of King's work, we are now in the beginning stages of a real confrontation between black and white Americans. Now, I must have missed this confrontation. Oh, I'm sorry. Black and white Americans, not black and white Christians. Gotcha. He may not have endorsed the concept of black power, but its existence is a result of his work. Black power advocates are men who were inspired by his zeal for freedom, and the black power is their attempt to make this dream a reality. If the black church organizations want to remain faithful to the New Testament gospel and to the great traditions of the pre-Civil War black church, they must relinquish their state and the status quo and their values in white society by identifying exclusively with black power. Black power is the only hope of the black church in America. 
And I snicker, man. I snicker from this standpoint. You have a hard time getting black folks to agree and acknowledge that they're black. <laughs> it's just point, point blank. But you want to acknowledge and identify exclusively with black power? Man, I would just take the fact that I would love to have them exclusively identify as being black. To say that they are a black church, that they are black church pastors. But nope. And the text reads, they not only confess but emphasize that the embracing of black power is the only meaningful response to racism in America and racism in the United Methodist Church. They said, it, black power, is a call for us to respond to God's action in history, which is to make and keep human life human. The Black Methodists went on to outline a beginning program for black and white churches interesting in making a relevant response to the black power revolution. Another sign of hope in black churches occurred when several leaders of many denominations issued a statement on black power in 1966. While they failed to endorse the concept of black power as a working concept, as did the black Methodists for church renewal, they did stress the fact that white racism is the basic reason for black unrest in America. And they also recognize that powerlessness breeds a race of beggars. And that's the thing. When we start talking about powerlessness, <laughs> we serve a all-powerful God. Yet somehow, someway, somehow, someway, we are some of the most docile people on the planet. Some of the most subservient people on the planet are black Christians. Come on, man. And the text reads, another sign of hope in black churches occurred when several leaders of many denominations issued a statement on black power in 1966. Yeah. But we must warn our black churchmen that there are dangers in making confessions and writing papers. It is so easy to think that a careful, rational articulation of the problem means that the oppressor will concede and cease his work of dehumanization. But the evaluation of the problem is merely the first step in problem solving. And that's, that's not even taking place now. We ain't trying to problem solve this, man. We ain't coming together, white Christians and black Christians, or black Christians coming together with black Christians, to address the problem, to actually evaluate the problem. No. It's just, it, you know how we evaluate the problem? Or you know how y'all Christians do it? Oh, it's sin. They just need to repent. And it's so much deeper than that, man. And the text reads, it seems that some black churchmen are beginning to realize the importance of backing one's revolution with resolutions with relevant action. It was heartwarming to hear that the black Methodists for church renewal walked out of the Methodist General Conference at the moment of the communion celebrating the new United Methodist Church in order to witness to the brokenness of the Methodist community. But one must be willing to do more than leave during communion. A more forceful confrontation is evidently necessary. 
It may be that black Methodists and their brothers elsewhere will need to confront churches with what is required to destroy ecclesiastical racism and be prepared to withdraw unless their demands are met. It is time for the church to be relevant by joining Christ in the black revolution. Unless the black church is prepared to respond to Christ's command of obedience by becoming one with the unwanted, then it, then it, like its white counterparts, is useless as a vehicle for divine reconciliation. Useless. useless. And the text reads, some may think these criticisms are too harsh and fail to point to the basic value of the black church in the black community. Some black churchmen may want to argue that the church, because it is owned by blacks, is important in giving many blacks people a sense of somebodyness in a hostile white world. It is the black church which bestows a sense of worth on many common blacks because the barriers encountered in society as a whole disappear in church. Mm, okay. Therefore, the church provides an opportunity for the common man, maid, truck driver, etc., to explore his abilities. For this reason, it is not uncommon to find the educator and the laborer on the same church board. Often, the latter is the chairman. The black church provides an opportunity for self-expression, a freedom to relax, and release from the daily grind of white racism. Is this not enough to warrant the existence of the black church? It may warrant its existence, but not in Christ. The existence of the church is grounded exclusively in Christ, and in the 20th century America, Christ means black power. It is certainly the case that the major institutional black churches have not caught the spirit of black power. Man, they ain't caught it, they ain't trying to catch it, they ain't looking for it. They ain't trying to do it, man. They ain't trying to do it. So far, the black church has remained conspicuously silent and continued its business as usual. The holding of conferences, the election of bishops, the fundraising drive for a new building or air conditioner seem to be more important than the blacks who are shot because they want to be men. The black churches, though sparsely located in the community of oppressed, has not responded to the needs of its people. It has rather drained the community, seeking to be more and more like the white church. Its ministers have condemned the helpless and have mimicked the values of whites. For this reason, most black power people bypass the churches as irrelevant to the objective. And most black people today are bypassing the church, man. Today we enter a new era, the era of black power. It is an age of rebellion and revolution. Blacks are no longer prepared to turn the other cheek. Instead, they are turning the gun. Blacks are dying in the streets at the hands of hired gunmen of the state because they refuse to respond to white oppression. This is an era where many blacks would rather die than be slaves. Now the question is, what do the black churches have to say about this? It is time for the black churches to change their style and join the suffering of black magic, black masses, proclaiming the gospel of black Christ. Whether they will do this 
is not clear now. What is clear is that they are poised at the moment of irrevocable differences, decisions rather, I'm sorry, between costly obedience and conferring apostasy. It is hard to know whether to laugh or weep as the church make bargains with the principalities and powers, prayers for the public occasions, tax exemptions, shying away from the vital issues, exhortations to private goodness, promotion of gutless spirituality, institutional self-glorification. They are all knotted so together in a monstrous, un ungodly tangle that spells death to black humanity. There is, of course, a difference between white churches and black churches, but the similarities are striking. Both have marked out their places at heavens of retreat. The one to cover the guilt of the oppressors, the other to dab the wounds of the oppressed. Neither is notably identified with the tear-healing power of Christ. Neither is a fit instrument of revolution. In such a situation, the idea of renewal seems futile. Renewal suggests that there is a core of healthy, truthful substance under all dirt and rust. But dirt can grind away a delicate mechanism and rust can consume rather than merely cover. The white church in America, though occasionally speaking well and even more rarely acting well, generally has been and is the embodiment of what is wrong with the road. It is racism in echoes. <laughs> yeah. Is racism in robes. It lives and breathes bigotry. The black church embodies a response to racism at the level of sheer survival at the price of freedom and dignity. Both have taken the, the good road, marked the good life, avoiding the call to discipleship, which is the call to suffering and death. For this reason, renewal in any ordinary sense means seems out of the question. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why I picked this book. That's why I picked the book. Because it punches you right in the mouth. It punches black Christians right in the mouth. Right in the mouth. This has been another episode, man, of the Page Turners Podcast. This is season one, episode 19. Man, I, I got to implore you to please continue to share, subscribe, comment, email, all those things. Let's get the word out about what we're doing over here, man, with the Page Turners Podcast. This is your boy, Big L. Till next time, we out.